0: If you want to make people bristle, just mention the words the federal government and privacy. The information from your federal tax return, the questions you answer for the U.S. Census, things that national security officials know about you. You may think the government knows way too much information about your personal life. But on the other hand, have you thought about the fact that Google and Amazon also know their fair share about you? I'm Bob Long, and we welcome you to another edition of Stats and Stories. It's a program where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Our focus this time is on questions of privacy and confidentiality. Joining me on Stats and Stories for our discussion of privacy and confidentiality are the man who comes up with these ideas for the shows, Miami University Statistics Department Chair, John Baylor, and our special guest today, Paul Scanlon. Paul's a survey methodologist and research social scientist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Center for Health Statistics. Before we start our discussion with Paul Scanlon, our stats and story reporter Emily Potton went out and did a story for us on how your information is used in the healthcare field.
1: The issues of privacy in healthcare have only gotten more sensitive as recent reforms push for insurance coverage for all Americans. The struggle to gain important data from patients is a problem for medical practices, but it also stretches into the collection of research data. Tissue, blood and urine samples and geographical data are just a few of the topics patients and research subjects are reluctant to give without the promise of anonymity or confidentiality. Miami University Research Fellow Dr. J. Scott Brown says the reasoning and concern for this is understandable.
2: It would not be that difficult if you were really an unscrupulous person or someone with an agenda to use those data to try and find people with certain characteristics and be able to deductively disclose who they
1: are. Brown does gerontology research for Scripps Gerontology Center on Miami University's campus. His daily work consists of several procedures to ensure all private information is kept safe.
2: It's stored on a portable hard drive in a locked file cabinet that I only have a key to. When I plug it into my computer, I have to actually log in my computer first, log out, unplug the network cable, and then log back in, so that while I work with those data, there is no internet connection on the machine. Any printouts I produce have to stay here in my office, and I have to destroy by shredding any printouts that I'm going to not use or after I'm done using
1: them. This level of security is actually pretty tame. Brown says other researchers have more intensive methods of protecting data.
2: Cure data are taken very, very seriously, and it's becoming much more prevalent as privacy concerns increase, I think with sort of Internet access and other aspects of widespread, very quick public access to things. People worry more. You're seeing these kind of data agreements and data issues throughout a lot of uh, any sort of social science statistics, anything that you're working with, where you're working with, secondary data that contain relatively private information.
1: The real question is, Why is security of health data so important? It all boils down to insurance. For patients, the worry of exposing health history and conditions threatens their coverage and may raise their payments. It's for this reason that researchers and medical professionals are charged with a federal offense if confidential information gets into the wrong hands. This charge would include a $10,000 fine and multiple years in prison. The reforms of the Affordable Health Care Act aren't making patients any more comfortable in their response to health care questions. However, Brown says most people respond honestly once they are assured their information will be kept secure. For the Miami Public Radio Project, I'm Emily Potten.
0: And I, I think when we start talking about this particular issue, as I mentioned there at the beginning, so many people think, You know too much about me already, but in your work with the Centers for Disease Control, many people have heard of the CDC, but let's talk about the kinds of things that you're doing survey work where, of course, you are dealing with issues that are private or confidential.
3: Right. So at the National Center for Health Statistics, we uh, collect a lot of data um, on public health, on health care, and on people's health outcomes. Uh, And this is legitimately private information. And... um, we are responsible for kind of weighing, finding a balance between asking people for too much and getting the data that we need to promote public health in the country and actually across the world as well. So we collect you know, statistics such as um, how often people visit doctors, um, what diseases are present in the population, uh, people's nutrition habits, eating habits, stuff like that. The question is, why do we need this? And, you know, we're responsible for the public health. Uh, that's kind of one of the big functions of government is to make sure that, you know, we can all at least try to be healthy, you know, uh, not necessarily making everybody healthy, but at least giving people the opportunity to be healthy. And and one of the key ways of doing that is to let people know, you know, what outcomes there are from going to the doctor and and um, what diseases are present, and, you know, um, stuff like that. So we collect, we use surveys to collect data on things like this. We, we have two major surveys at NCHS um, that, that collect this data. One is the NHANES, uh, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, and the other is the National Health Interview Survey. And, you know, through this, uh, we, we collect uh, all this various public health data, and then we eventually will release it to the public and to, to policymakers so they can you know make decisions and make policy and and hopefully help the country
0: John Baylor. I'll
4: turn to you for a question so can can you talk just a little bit about about you how how would n Haines or the the uh the n and his uh, be be used as as sort of a, a promotion of public health. What what are some of the? Can, can you give an example of the kind of question that might be addressed in NHANES and then ultimately how that question or answers to that question might might translate into something that could be action, some action that the public, public policy might might address. Sure.
3: And so let me just you know say right up front that I'm talking as for myself and as not as somebody for the CDC. These are my my personal opinions. Um, just need to put that disclaimer out there. But. So uh, on the end, you know we we ask about things like people's eating habits, um, and we can actually look at you know what kind of foods they're they're taking in. Um, so if we have that information, we can look at it across the population. We can by looking at the eating habits of people in a state or people across the country, we can then tie that to various health outcomes such as diabetes or heart disease, and. Policymakers, when they see that link, not policymakers only at the federal level, but policy, policy uh, makers at the state and even local level, can say, "Hey, we see that people are eating X, and the health outcome is Y. Well, we don't like that. So let's see if we can make some policies that make it easier for people to not end up with outcome Y: diabetes, heart disease, whatever." Just as a quick
4: follow-up, can can you? Can you give an example of of a question that you would view as kind of a, a very sensitive question to answer on this on one of these surveys?
0: Yeah,
3: so that's an interesting question because what people consider to be sensitive varies a lot ac- across the population. I mean, just asking people, "Do you drink a lot of soda?" In some people's mind, that's a sensitive question. They just yeah, don't that, like the that's government. that's real sensitive to me. <laughs> you know, people just don't like the government knowing that, right? Exactly, yeah. Um, you know, the traditional sensitive questions that we have on surveys like this deal with sexual practices, um, your diseases. I mean, a lot of people don't want to say that they have certain diseases, you know, HIV, even things like diabetes or um, a heart disease. I mean, there's there's social stigma a lot, around a lot of disease. Um, and so by asking that, we are kind of trying to ignore that stigma. So that's kind of getting into the, the realm of violating privacy in a way.
0: I, I think sometimes when people fill out different surveys, there may be a lot of different questions on there, and they might think, well, why does the CDC, for example, need to know the answer to this question? I think one of the misconceptions that might be out there is that Somehow, let's say there's certain information that the IRS has or somebody else has about me, and they may people may think that you have access to all that stuff. Is that true or, or not? Right. So it's it's not
3: true generally. Um, I know that like with the recent conversation about the NSA and national security and stuff, you know, there is this kind of general thought that government data is shared across all of government. So sitting at my desk at the CDC, I have information to your cell phone records or whatever. Right. And that's not true. There, there really are barriers between agencies and, and functional groups within within the uh, federal government. So take something like the IRS form. You you send your information in, hopefully, every every April. <laughs> um, hopefully, yeah. So that that form that you send in, it contains a lot of information that say the census actually collects, right? It has your age on there, it has the number of people in your economic household. Um but the Census Bureau doesn't have the ability to just reach over into the into the IRS's servers, pull that information and put it into their forms. Now that would in a way be nice. And I think that's a conversation that as a society we need to have. Um well, because there's a cost savings there, right? right. Um, if, if we can get data, say, for the decennial census, and I, I used to work at census, but again, I'm not talking <laughs> as somebody who's doing census policy here. But, um, you know, if, if we don't have to spend the money on sending people to people's houses to collect the data that you didn't send in on the original census run, And instead, we went to your IRS records or your Social Security records or your Medicaid records and got that information. We would save money, and it would probably be close to just as accurate, maybe even more accurate.
0: I want to explore that a little bit more because I think it's a really interesting topic. But we want to remind people that you're listening to Stats and Stories where we talk about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And we're focusing this time on some issues related to uh, health care and what the government has to or is trying to find out about health care issues and how that impacts also privacy and confidentiality. I'm Bob Long. Along with me are our regular panelists, Miami Statistics Department Chair John Baylor. Our special guest is Paul Scanlon. And again, he's a survey methodologist, research social scientist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Center for health statistics. We also thought it would be fun to find out what people on the street know about our topic. So we're asking them, what's the difference between privacy and confidentiality?
1: When something's confidential, it's kind of like going to a therapist or going somewhere. That's what I think of. But it's, privacy, I feel like it's totally different. I don't even know the words to think of. Confidential, you think like with your doctor, like they can't share information. Privacy, I mean, I don't think there's a big difference, but I think privacy is just what you do and don't tell others. Um, I think confidentiality is more of an agreement between, like, a doctor or something. So, like, you would have to do a waiver to for them to share your information. And then privacy, it's information that you would want to keep private. Like, if you're posting something on, say... Facebook or anywhere, like you'll have your privacy settings and it's certain things that you wouldn't want getting out.
2: Confidentiality means when you're sharing something between two people that you do no longer want it to be shared with others. Privacy is basically keeping your information secret. So if I'm putting my social security online, if I'm using my account numbers and things like that, that's the difference to me.
0: Well, I want to go back to that uh, subject. We'll ask more about the difference between those two. But before we do, you were talking about an interesting issue, and I don't know if John you wanted to follow up on on the, on that at all about uh, government agencies right now not sharing information. But as as Paul mentioned, some of the cost savings and things that could go into that.
4: Yeah, I think that there's some some questions about how how you work in partnership with with other other organizations in the federal government also not just to to collect unique information but to make sure you're collecting the information that you intend so i think it's a to me it's a it's an interesting question when i look at a survey or i look at a questionnaire how? What are you trying to measure? How do you know what you're trying to measure? And how do you guarantee or how do you how do you feel confident that, that you're measuring this with some kind of accuracy? So, so like the ideas of validity and reliability of things. Can you talk just a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So that's actually a lot of my my work is on on this, on making sure that what we collect, what we actually burden the public with, because when we send somebody a, a survey, it's a burden. Even if it's not a hard survey to fill out, we're taking your time. So we want to make sure that we're collecting data that matches what we want so that we're not you know, wasting your time and wasting taxpayer money. So really the key way of, of, of making sure that the questions we ask on surveys and even on forms such as IRS forms and other government forms, uh, the, the key way of testing that validity is to do qualitative research on it. So we do things called cognitive interviews where we will sit down with, with respondents and actually go through a form and say, okay, answer this question, how old are you? All right. So what did you mean by that? Why, why did you say you were 35 years old? Um, you know, these are really simple questions, that, that right? That one seems kind of easy. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I, they do, I, I right? I you don't need a lot of testing there. <laughs> you don't. But, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting that some of these really easy questions, we're making assumptions about them, but we don't actually – you might be right that they're really easy, <laughs> but we don't actually know that, right? Well, so, so what's so a harder –
4: mean... give us an example of a harder thing to, to measure. Have
3: but... you been to the doctor in the last year? Mm-hmm. Okay, OK. So I give that question. Um, and, and this is from a, a, an example given by a, a, one of the founders of this method, Gordon Willis, who's at the National Cancer Institute. And uh, so I ask people, have you been to the doctor in the last year? And And they say, yes, maybe. And I said, so what were you thinking about that? And it turns out that they weren't thinking about a dentist. Well, maybe we wanted them to think about a dentist. Maybe we wanted them to think about all kind of healthcare providers. Uh, when I said the last year, well, maybe they were thinking about the calendar year. or Maybe they're thinking about twelve months, right? So there's these these points of variation within a question, and it's our job to make sure there isn't that much variation in a question when we're designing it to make sure that we're actually capturing the really tight construct and and not you know, wasting your time.
0: Back to that question, though, because as as we're saying about potentially it could save money if if some questions that you could find out from going to the IRS or going to another agency, that would be expedient, but the, we have this public opinion problem. And I'm, I'm kind of curious if there's any Gallup polls or anything like out there that show how people would feel if, for example, you were able to share information because they're so upset all all these privacy issues right now.
3: Right. So we have been doing some research on that, and we're, we haven't quite finished it. So I, I don't want to like give away the results, um, but we. Uh, A bunch of the federal statistical agencies, and I guess I should kind of explain that. So there's the Census Bureau, which I think a lot of people have heard about, things like the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they're the ones who release the uh, monthly employment numbers that you you get on the first Friday. My agency, the National Center for Health Statistics, there's about 14 federal statistical agencies, and we all kind of work together. So we started to fund some research on this question itself, when we were doing an attitudinal survey. To see what people think about combining data from other sources. Um, Our early findings are that there's some concern, right? But but our other finding is that we can say certain things. That we can say that we're using the data to do X, that there will be a public good out of it, or that we will be saving money because of it. um, Or that it will become more accurate, that the data in the end will be more accurate if you let us do that. And that actually ticks up private opinion, uh, public opinion just a little bit. Uh, so I think one of our jobs is, as a federal statistical system, is to figure out what we can tell the public that will make them allow us, make mm-hmm. them allow us, I, 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 that's <laughs> terrible, but that that will shift public opinion in a way that, that we will be able to do this and, and get some cost savings and get some accuracy uh, improvements and stuff like that. Um, that's one part. The other part of us, we really need to focus in on what particular data we want to grab from other agencies. It can't just be we're going to get all the data and throw yeah, it into exactly. a pot, right? Right. That that's first of all not fair because of privacy concerns, and it's also a waste of our time. Yeah, so let, I think it's,
4: it's probably appropriate to start thinking about transitioning this to thinking about this privacy con- confidentiality. So can you can you give us some sense of how, how do you differentiate between privacy and confidentiality?
3: So privacy is – if you think about the data collection process, privacy happens before. So privacy is, is what people are actually willing to give. So it could be a government agency asking. It could be a, Google asking. It could be a, a private polling firm. So there are certain pieces of information that I consider private that I'm just not going to give to everybody. So privacy is kind of a – it's almost a, a personal feeling. And, and there's societal links. We can look across the culture and, and, and figure out if there are certain classes of information that are private, that people consider private. Um, it's our job when we're collecting data to convince people that we'll be using it in, in a responsible way – that then they will allow us to get some of that private information. And, and we can't always get all of it. You know, um, there, there are maybe absolute limits on what people will give us. But if we uh, get informed consent and we, we convince people that the work we're doing is important um, for the public good, we can usually, you know, say, we know this information is private. We hope you trust us with it. So part of that though is confidentiality. And confidentiality is kind of on the b- back end of, of data collection and it's confidentiality is us holding on to the data and doing only with it what we said we were going to do. Okay, so if federal data is collected usually under a promise of confidentiality, which what that means is when you turn in the census form, under Title 13 of the United States Code, nobody who sees that data at the Census Bureau can give that information to anybody else. So if we, we have at the Census Bureau, we have your name, we have your, your address, we have stuff like that, that can't leave the Census Bureau, So, and that's under law. Mm-hmm. And it's actually been upheld in, in courts. Uh, and the other federal statistical agencies operate under a similar thing, it's just Title 42. It's, I mean, this is really wonky. Yeah. But, it, it, you know, they're just two separate statutes, but they, they're both um, enshrining in law that we can't share that data outside of what we said we we're going to do. Yeah, and have,
0: after after I've given it to you uh, and, and I've done it in, in confidence with you, that right. therefore it shouldn't be shared. Exactly, right.
3: and so actually that's part of the issue when we're looking at, at bringing mm-hmm. that data from somewhere like IRS, because when you you know when you send your data to IRS, if you read your, your 1040 next year, there's actually a line in there that says, you know, they will the data will stay within the IRS. So th- it's a matter of informed consent. that, you know, the census or NCHS can't just grab that data without going back to you and getting your consent. So there's also an operational issue there.
0: Great point. You're listening to uh, Stats and Stories. And again, we're talking about some issues of privacy and confidentiality and I'm Bob Long. With me today, our regular uh, panelist, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor. Our special guest is Paul Scanlon. And again, he's a survey methodologist and research social scientist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in their National Center for Health Statistics. And again, we'll mention uh, that Paul is here representing himself, not the official positions Thank you. (laughs) Of the CDC. (laughs) We'll just throw that in. We also thought it would be interesting because Paul just raised up another issue that we'll address next. Uh, Whom do you trust more? Uh, The federal government having your private information or how about companies like Google and Amazon?
1: Personally, neither. But if I had to go with one, I guess the government. But I would really prefer neither.
2: Neither one,
1: but... I'd probably have to choose the government.
2: I've probably put my trust more in Amazon and Google uh, because the government has had some loopholes. But I use that more. You know, I only deal with the government basically with my info when I get a paycheck or when I file my income tax.
4: You know, after the recent Target, you know, debacle and, and things like that, overall, I'd say I trust the government more, but I don't know what they're using it for. So that's, that's kind of the dilemma is, like, do, who, who's safer? I think the government's probably safer, but why, what information do they have and why do they have it? So I guess there's a lot more question marks there. So what, what have, you, have you seen any research on this? Have you seen any, any, any studies that show how willing people are to share their private information, this privacy concern, with, with some vendor, with, some, with a company, versus with a federal government that might be used for, for policy or planning at, at federal and state levels?
3: Right, yeah. So I think there's a there's a few ways of, of looking for that data. We can actually just look at response rates um, to, to surveys between the federal government giving the surveys or, or private firms. And the federal government does have a, a better response rate. And so in a way, that's kind of a proxy for saying maybe they trust us in the federal system a little more. I mean, we do have, again, that promise of confidentiality under the law that, that private uh, uh, firms can't promise. Um. But I've actually done some, some qualitative research on this. A colleague of mine who's now at the uh, University of uh, Missouri, Kansas City, Michelle Smirnova, and I did um, a research project where we actually kind of gathered focus groups together and, and talked to people about this exact issue. And, you know, I think when they, people give information, even that they consider private, to places like Google and Facebook – their immediate reaction is they're getting a service. They're getting an immediate service, right? So they might have a privacy concern about something, but they want their Gmail, you know? So there's, there's informed consent there because they consent to use the, the service. And, and so it's almost two separate ways of doing it because we're just asking for data and saying, hey, in the long run, there's going to be a societal good. When we're looking at a lot of these private corporations, at least kind of the big ones that we think about all the time—Google, Facebook, um, Twitter—there, there's this immediate, I'm getting something right away. So, I think that we still need to do more research on that and whether or not people are ignoring the privacy concerns the moment they say, "I'm going to sign up for a Gmail account" or "I'm going to send this this Gmail," uh, or they just, they just don't care.
4: Yeah, uh, you know. Th- th- you raised a really interesting question a really observation was what I thought was really cool was the idea that there's a direct service that's in some sense you're being paid for release of your privacy. Right. And and I and then you're saying that in, in contrast some of the information that that you would be collecting with NHANES or NHIS or other other surveys it, there's a delay of this. Mm. How, how do you how do you tell that story in such a way that that someone would say if I'm participating in this health and nutrition survey there is some, some benefit. I mean it's saying it's societal is different than knowing that I've got my email account. I mean that's that direct right. benefit. So so how do you make that story real? And how do you say that, that what's the if if NHANES were to disappear I mean some, at one level I was thinking if NHANES were to disappear, that health health and nutrition survey disappeared what would be the impact on society? What would right. be the so? Can can you talk a little bit about that?
3: Yeah. yeah. So let me actually go to a different survey to explain this. I, when okay. I was at the Census Bureau, I worked on what's called the American Community Survey, which is the new long form census. So I think, uh, you know, people used to get a, a really long uh, form. I think it was like thirty pages. Right. right. Uh, at every decennial census. And now, what we've at the Census Bureau, they've switched it to a yearly survey. Where, a, uh, like three and a half million people, I think, get the survey every year, and we're actually able to release. Annual data, so it's still a really long survey, and it's kind of burdensome, and it collects a lot of information that people kind of find a little off-putting. I mean, it asks for the number of toilets you have in your house. It asks, you know, for um, a, a lot of uh, personal relationship information and, and stuff like that. And when I worked at the Census on this survey, one of our jobs was to tell that story, to say if you don't give us this information. What happens then? Why should you give us this data? And we would turn to things like well, firehouses, schools, roads. So if we we need this information to do something that it will directly impact your life, and yeah, it might not happen as quickly as getting an email, but if you know if if we collect this data and we know that you're underserved by schools, well then maybe more funding can come into your into your locality so that you can get a new school or a new firehouse or we could repair bridges. And, and so that, that's the kind of story that I think we need to tell. And it's, it's on us. And this relates back to the, the privacy thing is that we're telling the story not only to get past that privacy barrier, but even just to get the information in the first place because we're asking them to do kind of this burdensome thing to fill out a survey for half an hour to an hour.
0: We're almost running out of time here today, but I wanted to kind of shift, Paul, because um, with, with your work with the Centers of Disease Control, you're also doing um, other kind of research work, and and I know one thing that that kind of struck me was we 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 are in an era where s- different states are passing same-sex marriage laws and things like that, but. Um, somehow the government sometimes doesn't get – are there questions how accurate the government information might be on same-sex couples? How many are there? Mm-hmm. And some of that probably relates to privacy issues, too, in, in the way we fill out census data and things like that. Is that true?
3: Uh, I think some of it probably has to do with with privacy data and, and privacy and, and whether or not people are willing to, um, to talk about that on a, on a government form. There's actually been a lot of research done about this that I've been mm-hmm. involved uh, in, um uh, it's been an interagency committee um, at, with, you know, 15 or so agencies. And we've been kind of looking at how to improve the statistics, especially now that the Supreme Court has struck down some key parts of DOMA that the federal government now recognizes legally performed same-sex marriages. So we actually do need that data now, and we need valid data. Um, and so what we've done is research at the Census Bureau, at NCHS, we've been looking at kind of changing the questions we have around household relationships and marital status um, and cohabitation so that we can more accurately capture whether or not people are actually in a same-sex or an opposite-sex marriage relationship or they're in a same-sex or opposite-sex kind of unmarried relationship, whether or not – we never had uh, in previous forms whether or not you – had a, a cohabitant, uh, you know, I live with my fiance. So, you know, that, that wasn't captured before. Um, and, and so now we're going to do that. And that's all kind of tied together and making that that data more valid. So now that we do have to deal with more states are passing laws, um, and now that the federal government has to recognize those marriages, we do need that accurate information. So we're, we're definitely working towards that. And hopefully, you know, by the next census – We'll be able to provide some really good data on that, John Baylor.
4: Time for final question from you, too. You know, I I find this really exciting to think about the 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 purpose and effort that goes into to the the variables that you measure and the, and some of the i the the. the the critical components that that, are, that go into these surveys that we see that I don't think that maybe people appreciate just how much effort goes into making a good survey. Right. You know, we probably all have experience with seeing bad ones, but <laughs> <laughs> I think it's very, I think it's exciting to see the, the kind of effort and, and, and work that goes into it. I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the, you know, sort of future work that you see. So you, you had mentioned something in a, in, a previous discussion about this idea of a verbal autopsy right. project that you were going to do. I, I, that sounded really fascinating. I was wondering if you could sh- share a little bit of, about it.
3: Sure, that. yeah. Uh, so the CDC is responsible for collecting vital statistics, and we also help other countries collect those. And by vital statistics, I mean birth and death, death records and, you know, the causes of death. So a verbal autopsy, and this is a work that we at the CDC are doing alongside our partners at the WHO. Uh, is a way of collecting cause of death information where there aren't necessarily coroners or medical professionals who can give us that accurate information. What the WHO has come up with and what we're helping revise is a uh, a verbal questionnaire that we will go to somebody's loved ones or or care providers um, and say – ask a bunch of medical kind of questions, you know, was this person taking this medicine? Did this person display these symptoms? And it's, we'll go through this whole questionnaire, and at the end, it'll hopefully shoot out a cause of death so that we can improve those vital statistics. And we're actually going to do some testing on this in, in Kenya um, in November. So I'll be heading there with some colleagues and um you know, and hopefully we'll we'll start testing that in Kenya and, and maybe to other countries. And you know, eventually we want to be able to improve the vital statistics across the world.
0: Paul Scanlon, great information, very interesting, and we really appreciate uh, you being here again. Paul is a survey methodologist and research social scientist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's National Center for Health Statistics. Again, our pleasure to have you Thanks on a lot, guys. Stats I and it. Stories. It was fun. Thanks. All right, we want to just remind you too uh, that if you'd like to share some of your thoughts about our program. Maybe topics that you'd like to hear in the future, send us an email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we'll talk about the stats behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.